0: Here we are back. We're talking politics at the end of segment one, so let's continue in that vein for the moment. No doubt the biggest political news of the last seven days was the passing of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. And while it's considered bad form to speak ill of the dead, we're going to operate in accordance with two of our favorite quotes. The first being from Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who once said, if you can't say something nice about somebody, come over here and sit by me. our second quote comes from the great attorney Clarence Darrow, who once said, I have never killed a man, but I have read many obituaries with great pleasure. One thing that is certain is that we all have to go sometime. We think that the time that Antonin Scalia chose wasn't too bad. And in noodling around for things to say about Scalia, I stumbled upon some comments by the Young Turks program, St. Uyghur, I think that's how it's pronounced, the host of the program, expressed some sentiments on Antonin Scalia so well that I have no possibility of bettering it. So, let's just hear what he had to say.
1: Antonin Scalia has just passed away, of course, a Supreme Court justice. Now, uh, he was enormously conservative, but I don't want anybody celebrating his death. That's not what we do. We're the good guys. You wouldn't want anybody celebrating a liberal Supreme Court justice's death, right? So, now, on the other hand... Uh, right now, the conservatives are busy lionizing him. Oh, what an intellectual! What an incredibly brilliant legal mind! And oh, he was so principled. And the mainstream media, I guarantee you, right now is playing along with that narrative. Oh, he was a strict constructionist. He cared what about the founding fathers, and he was so principled. Okay, we have to be clear on the record right now, whether he's alive or he's passed away. You have to be honest about his record. He was no such thing he was an enormous hypocrite for all my life uh, and by the way i use i am a conservative uh, judicially speaking in fact i was in the federalist society for a long time which is a very conservative uh, group uh, in, in judicial circles i'm no longer in the federalist society but i still hold a lot of my conservative judicial views now uh, i had thought that scalia was a hero i'm a republican i'm conservative judicially and i i believe in the myth of him being principled right And then every once in a while I'd see an opinion, I'd go, wait a minute, that's the Republican position, but that doesn't make any sense, because that goes counter to what Scalia has said in the past. And then I saw it again and again and again. And then I realized, oh my God, Scalia doesn't care about principles. He's going to vote for the Republican side and his own religious beliefs, no matter what the law is, no matter what the precedent is. Now there's literally dozens of examples of this, but I'll give you the most famous one. FOR ALL MY LIFE SCALIA HAS BEEN TALKING ABOUT STATES RIGHTS, THE STATES HAVE RIGHTS, LOOK AT THE CONSTITUTION, WE MUST LET THE STATES DECIDE. AND THEN IN BUSH V. GORE IN 2000, FLORIDA SAID WE HAVE THE RIGHT TO COUNT ANY WAY WE LIKE, WE WANT TO MAKE SURE WE RECOUNT THE STATE TO MAKE SURE WE HAVE got THE RIGHT uh, WINNER OF THE ELECTION. SCALIA AND THE OTHER CONSERVATIVES STEPPED IN AND SAID WE DON'T CARE ABOUT STATES RIGHTS AT ALL, STATES RIGHTS ARE IRRELEVANT, FLORIDA HAS NO STATES RIGHTS, NO, YOU ARE NOT ALLOWED TO RECOUNT. Oh, so it turns out you were a giant hypocrite. We just did a story on another hypocrisy he had just yesterday on the show. He wrote a book explaining how if there are two contradictory laws, you must let the executive branch decide. And then the executive branch comes in with new EPA rulings. He reverses himself from his own book and says, Ah, no, 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 you don't let the executive branch decide. No, uh, we're not going to let them decide. The guy just wanted to get to the conclusion that was based on his politics. So, whatever you hear on TV is not true in, in that if they go to say, oh, he was principled. He isn't. Any legal scholar that studied him knows that, okay? So, there'll be a lot of mythology. Now, I'll give you exact quotes from Scalia to give you a sense of what Scalia was actually like. Uh, on a death row case, Troy Davis, uh, there was substantial evidence, according to the court, Justice Stevens, that he was innocent. Seven out of the nine witnesses had recanted, saying, No, 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 he didn't do it. Here's what Scalia wrote in his dissent This court has never held that the Constitution forbids the execution of a convicted defendant who has had a full and fair trial, but is later able to convince a habeas court that he is actually innocent. In other words, I don't give a damn that he's actually innocent. If we went through the correct procedure, put him to death anyway. That's who Scalia is. I've got more quotes for you. What he loved to do is deny other people rights. When it came to his group, oh no no, they have to have all the rights in the world. But when it came to other groups, here was his thought on uh, the LGBT community. quote, "If we cannot have moral feelings against homosexuality, can we have it against murder? Can we have it against other things? Wow, <laughs> more. Now this is when it comes to atheists. With respect to public acknowledgment of religious belief, it is entirely clear from our nation's historical practices that the Establishment Clause permits this disregard of polytheists and believers in unconcerned deities, just as it permits the disregard of devout atheists. He made the unbelievable assertion that the Constitution says, "Yeah, even though we're not allowed to establish a religion, we are allowed to discriminate against atheists." But what? It, COMES TO HIS OWN RELIGION, PRINCIPLES BE DAMNED, THE CONSTITUTION BE DAMNED, THE STRICT INTERPRETATION OF THE OBVIOUS WORDS OF THE CONSTITUTION BE DAMNED. HE DOESN'T LIKE ATHEISTS, HE DOESN'T LIKE GAY PEOPLE, HE'S GOING TO RULE AGAINST THEM NO MATTER WHAT. THIS GUY HAD NO PRINCIPLES. NOW, ON THE ISSUES OF HIS RELIGIOUS BELIEFS THAT HE USED ON ALMOST ALL THE CASES uh, in, re- IN THE SOCIAL REALM, HERE'S WHAT HE THOUGHT ABOUT EVOLUTION. Quote. THE BODY OF SCIENTIFIC EVIDENCE SUPPORTING CREATION SCIENCE IS AS STRONG AS THAT SUPPORTING EVOLUTION. IN FACT, IT MAY BE STRONGER. HOW PREPOSTEROUS. HE GOES ON TO SAY, THE EVIDENCE FOR EVOLUTION IS FAR LESS COMPELLING THAN WE HAVE BEEN LED TO BELIEVE. EVOLUTION IS NOT A SCIENTIFIC FACT, SINCE IT CANNOT ACTUALLY BE OBSERVED IN THE LABORATORY. RATHER, EVOLUTION IS MERELY A SCIENTIFIC THEORY OR GUESS. IT IS A VERY BAD GUESS AT THAT. THE SCIENTIFIC PROBLEMS WITH EVOLUTION ARE SO SERIOUS that it could accurately be termed a myth so if you hear on television which you most certainly will that this guy was a genius remember he was so scientifically illiterate that he thought evolution was a myth and that creation science was the better scientific answer where God goes let there be light and I will take a rib from Adam and make a woman out of it HE THOUGHT THAT WAS MORE LIKELY SCIENTIFICALLY THAN EVOLUTION. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. BUT I'M NOT DONE YET. ONE FINAL QUOTE, AND THIS one's ABOUT THE DEVIL. QUOTE, YOU ARE LOOKING AT ME AS THOUGH I'M WEIRD. MY GOD, ARE YOU SO OUT OF TOUCH WITH MOST OF AMERICA, MOST OF WHICH BELIEVES IN THE DEVIL? I MEAN, JESUS CHRIST BELIEVED IN THE DEVIL, IT'S IN THE GOSPELS. YOU TRAVEL IN CIRCLES THAT ARE SO, SO REMOVED FROM MAINSTREAM AMERICA THAT YOU ARE APPALLED THAT ANYBODY WOULD BELIEVE IN THE DEVIL most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil this guy believes that there is a Beelzebub he is literal and for example right now he's torturing Mahatma Gandhi because Gandhi did not accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior according to the Scalia's beliefs he is in hell being eternally tortured he literally believes in that devil SO SCALIA HAS PASSED AWAY, AND FOR HIS SAKE, GIVEN HOW MANY RIGHTS HE TRIED TO TAKE AWAY FROM SO MANY AMERICANS, I HOPE TO GOD THAT HE IS WRONG ABOUT THE DEVIL.
0: WELL, WE THINK IT MIGHT BE A LITTLE UNFAIR TO ACCUSE SCALIA OF POSSIBLY BE MAKING THE AFTERLIFE DIFFICULT FOR MAHATMA GANDHI, BUT I GOT TO SAY, I WOULD AGREE WITH JUST ABOUT EVERYTHING EXPRESSED IN THAT OPINION. WHEN SCALIA HIT THE COURT, In the 1980s, appointed by Ronald Reagan, he set out to reverse the idea that the Constitution was, in essence, a living document that had to grow with the times, and instead look back at what he thought the Founding Fathers' intention was. Never mind the fact that this would (laughs) produce some notions like the fact that black people would count as three-fifths of a person, or that, per our original Constitution, slavery was okay— We personally bear Mr. Scalia great animosity for his participation in Bush v. Gore, which, as the Young Turks point out, reversed the idea that the states were paramount when it looked as though the action of one state would deny George W. Bush the presidency. I believe we've cited this quote before in this program, but it's probably time to do it again and note that when the Supreme Court took the very unusual step of stopping the vote count that was going on in the state of Florida, said Scalia, quote, the counting of votes that are of questionable legality does, in my view, threaten irreparable harm to petitioner, The petitioner was George Bush, and to the country by casting a cloud upon what he claims to be the legitimacy of his election, which if you translate into plain English, says we can't let this vote count go forward. It might do harm to George W. Bush. He says he won. The vote count might show that he didn't. And of course, There is one decision that ranks right up there with Bush v. Gore. That would be Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission in 2010. Scalia was part of that majority, a majority that decided that corporations are people. This created the situation where corporations can now donate unlimited amounts of money to super PACs, which are used to influence political elections. Scalia, Mr. Original Intent, argued that even if we agree that the founders disliked founding-era corporations, modern corporations might not qualify for exclusion. Most of the founders' resentment towards corporations was directed at the state-granted monopoly privileges that individually chartered corporations enjoyed. Modern corporations do not have such privileges, and would probably have been favored by most of our enterprising founders, excluding perhaps Thomas Jefferson and others favoring perpetuation of an agrarian society. Yeah, that son-of-a-bitch Jefferson. This is the guy they're now lionizing as a judicial giant. So let's reciting these. Let, let's do a couple more. How about Lawrence versus Texas back in 2003, where the Supreme Court struck down a law that banned sodomy? Scalia descended from the opinion on that one. It might be worth noting, too, that the biblical description of sodomy apparently includes oral sex, which is, as far as we know here at Radio Parallax, a Pretty much universally popular activity. But Scalia would have none of it. He said many Americans do not want persons who openly engage in homosexual conduct as partners in their business, as scoutmasters for their children, as teachers in their children's schools, or as boarders in their home. They view this as protecting themselves and their families from a lifestyle that they believe to be immoral and destructive. And let's close with uh, Anthony Scalia weighing in on Burwell versus Hobby Lobby in 2014. The Supreme Court there decided that private businesses can be exempted from certain laws on religious grounds. Scalia voted with the opinion of the court. During the case's oral arguments, he said, well, religious beliefs aren't reasonable. I mean, religious beliefs are categorical. You know, it's God tells you. It's not a matter of being reasonable. God be reasonable? He's supposed to have a full beard. Well, all I can say to that is... and Meanwhile, let's back into New Hampshire... It's really kind of amazing to us still that Trump thumped the competition, as did Bernie Sanders. When Bernie starts raising questions about Hillary Clinton's ties to Wall Street, we have to admit to being astonished at the fact that the NationalReview.com sounded off in saying that uh, Clinton's claiming in her concession speech that, I will fight to reign in Wall Street, and you know what? I know how to do it. Well, when NationalReview.com says that assurance sounds pretty empty, especially since Clinton is refusing to release the transcripts of the speeches Goldman paid her $675,000 to deliver. Did you know about this? I didn't know about this. Evidently, Goldman employees told Politico.com last week that the speeches were practically pep talks for the beleaguered financial sector. Said one employee, it was pretty glowing about us. She sounded more like a Goldman Sachs managing director. No it's national review in the heat of this heated primary race with Democrats in an anti-establishment mood. Transcripts of Hillary going on and on about how stupid it was for people to be bashing big banks could be fatal to her candidacy. Oh, by the way, to get that $675,000, she did have to give three speeches. And do we not have to give some credit to Donald Trump for saying what, uh, what we've said on this program and a lot of progressive people have said over the years about the George W. Bush presidency? And by the way, did you see George W. Bush uh, coming out of retirement to stump down in South Carolina for Jeb? Boy, the sight of him brought back some bad memories. But we want to give Trump some credit. In that last debate, he said they lied referring to the Bush administration's rationale for invading Iraq in 2003. They said there were weapons of mass destruction, and they knew there were none. When's the last time you heard a major political figure make that statement? Evidently, Jeb Bush shot back with, I'm sick and tired of Barack Obama blaming my brother for all the problems that he's had. Jeb went on to praise his family, saying, My dad is the greatest man alive, in my mind. Adding, while Donald Trump was building a reality TV show, my brother was building a security apparatus to keep us safe. That point, Marco Rubio jumped in to say, I thank God all the time that it was George W. Bush in the White House on 9-11, not Al Gore. Trump came back with the World Trade Center came down. That is not safe, Marco. Chris, one thing I find curious is the fact that although Ohio Governor John Kasich took second in New Hampshire, He's just getting no respect. Writing in Slate.com, Josh Voorhees said, Kasich's strong finish turns the GOP Trump-themed headache into a migraine. With huge war chests and massive ground operations in other states, Rubio and Bush were well positioned to use the second-place spotlight to finally begin consolidating establishment-minded voters. In contrast, Kasich is almost comically ill-equipped to do so, with little money left and virtually no conservative support. What's up with Slate.com? Don't they have enough money to hire better writers than that? Personally, knowing Jeb Bush's background and seeing what comes out of the mouth of Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, I have to say, Donald Trump doesn't look that bad. And by the way, speaking of Ted Cruz, the Republican that we would have to assume Goldman Sachs likes the most, we invite you, dear listener, to look up his dad. Go find some of the YouTube clips out there of Ted Cruz's old man doing some preaching. Ted appears to be just a chip off the old block, and what an old block it is. Check it out. Another preacher that says that evolution is a myth. And by the way, speaking of Republicans, isn't it horrible that Mitch McConnell and others are immediately coming forward while Scalia was still warm, I think, to say that the American people should have a a say in who gets put on the Supreme Court? Well, yeah, the American people through the representative democracy do get a say. The senators get to vote on it. But the president gets to pick the nominee. That's just the way it works. And although people like Ted Cruz were erroneously claiming that uh, no one ever gets in the Supreme Court in the year before an election, look back at Tony Kennedy. Went from McGeorge Law School in Sacramento to the nation's highest court in 1988, Reagan's last year in office. All right, I meant to give a full report on Matt Taibbi, who spoke at uh, the Mondavi Center. A couple of weeks back, he was talking mostly about his new book, The Divide American Injustice in the Age of the Wealth Gap. He had a lot of good things to say. One of them was about the situation in New York City. An influential sociologic paper many years back pointed out that broken windows would lead to decay in an urban environment because it would appear that nobody was taking care of things. New York embraced this, uh, this principle to go after people with a stop-and-frisk approach. They felt that if they could nip in the bud small crimes being committed by small criminals, well, they could turn things around. So it was in the streets of New York that it went from a few tens of thousands to, at its peak, 680,000 stops in a given year, leading to countless arrests and busts for things like, you know, (laughs) riding a bicycle the wrong way for having a joint in your pocket. In fact, Taibbi referred to the example of one young man who was facing 40 days in jail because the cops found he had a joint on him. Taibbi contrasted that with another policy on the other end of things, the top end. An influential paper by Eric Holder, future attorney general of the United States under Obama, pointed out that going after really big fish could have economic consequences, and therefore one had to be cognizant of the collateral damage that legal sanctions might have. In other words, go easy on the big guys. Taibbi cited an example of where a large bank had pretty much been caught red-handed laundering money for the Mexican drug lords. Taibbi pointed out that under Holder's guiding principles, nobody from any of these big banks was facing any legal sanctions. Oh, well, I shouldn't say any. They did have to pay some fines, but nobody faced jail time for being in bed with the Mexican drug lords, as opposed to that kid on the street facing 40 days in jail for possessing one joint. And, you know, I really want to quote from Matt Taibbi's Griftopia because it's just got some barn burner great reporting in there, but I don't think we have time. How much time we have, Mr. McMillan? We're about 18 minutes in. Oh, All right, I'm just going to have to do about one minute's worth of quote here. Tybee is referring to the great meltdown in 2008 that apparently lost the economy about $13 trillion. Said Matt, we paid for this instead of a generation of health insurance or an alternative energy grid or a brand new system of roads and highways. With the $13 plus trillion we are estimated to ultimately spend on the bailouts, we could not only have bought and paid off every single subprime mortgage in the country, that would have only cost $1.4 trillion, We could have paid off every remaining mortgage of any kind in this country and still have had enough money left over to buy a new house for every American who does not already have one. But we didn't do that, and we didn't spend the money on anything else useful either. Why? For a very good reason, because we're no good anymore at building bridges and highways or coming up with a brilliant innovation in energy or medicine. We're crappy now at finishing massive public works projects or launching brilliant fairy tale public policy ventures like the moon landing. What are we good at? Robbing what's left. When it comes to that, we Americans have no peer. Anyway, I think we'll have more to say about the writings of Matt Taibbi and Michael Lewis next week. All right, in the minute or so we have left, I want to quote from Jonathan Tubin, writing in Commentary com. Tubin's writing appears a bit questionable to us of late. what I would like to quote from what he had to say about Rand Paul. Jonathan Tubin said, the libertarian movement is over. It officially ended when Rand Paul suspended his political campaign after receiving a paltry 4.5% back in Iowa. It's hard to believe that just 16 months ago, time hailed the Kentucky senator as the most interesting man in politics. Paul was the toast of the Republican Party with supporters predicting he would retain the loyalties of his gadfly father, Ron, while broadening libertarianism's appeal. Paul ran for president on a platform of curtailing government surveillance, check, reforming the criminal justice system, check, legalizing marijuana, check, and avoiding foreign military adventures, check, which all attractive to younger voters, and we're giving it a check because those are all things we would endorse at Radio Parallax. But apparently, ISIS changed the equation according to Tubin. The gruesome beheadings of Americans and terror attacks in Europe and the US marginalized Paul's isolationism. Of course, also signing off on the subject of uh, Paul libertarianism was Ron Trzinski in the Federalist.com, who said Paul didn't run as a libertarian. In a quest for votes, he watered down his message so much that it was paradoxically too close to the conservative mainstream. When Trump stoked fears about nativist rhetoric, for example, Paul joined the scramble to seem tough on immigration instead of advocating less restrictive laws. He also failed to take up the libertarian cause of radically scaling back the welfare state and middle class entitlements. Instead, he tried to run as a more reasonable Ron Paul, which turns out to be way less interesting. Well, personally, I'm a bit sorry to see that he's gone. There are are a few things to like about the libertarian perspective. When Bush Cheney pushed us into the ill advised war in Iraq, Rand Paul's dad, Congressman Ron Paul, made a barn burner of a good speech asking some very appropriate and pointed questions. Anyway, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax.